Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I talked to Aris Komporosos Athanasiou, Associate Professor of Sociology at UCL, about his book, Speculative Communities, Living with Uncertainty in a Financialized World. We talk about the formation of a new kind of subject, homo speculans, and how mutual cooperation in the context of deep and pervasive uncertainty that characterizes life under financial capitalism is building new communities and new forms of resistance to financialization. Thanks, as always, to our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests, please support us at patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favorite episodes on social media, tagging at aworldtowinpod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers, who've let us use their track, Heavyweight Champion of the World, as our intro and outro music. And now, here is Aris Komporosos Athanasiou on his book, Speculative Communities. Hello and welcome to this episode of A World to Win. I am joined today by Aris Komporosos Athanasiou. Did I get that right? Perfect, yes. Great. <laughs> to talk about his <laughs> forthcoming book, Speculative Communities. How are you doing today, Aris? I'm very well. Thank you, Grace. Good. Well, let's just jump straight in then. And can you just tell us what exactly speculation is and how it differs from investment in general? Yes, I think it's a very important question to start with. So, yeah, speculation, we usually distinguish between investment and speculation. And so the connotations of speculation tend to be more negative and those of investment more positive. So, the Oxford Dictionary of Finance and Banking, for instance, distinguishes speculation from investment in that the former is carried out for the sole purpose of making capital gain. So that there is something in the very logic of speculation that is very circular, uh, unproductive. So that's on a first level. On a deeper level, and this kind of is also related to my key concept of the book, Speculative Communities, and my the reason why I chose this framing to talk about uh, contemporary capitalism, financialized capitalism. So on a deeper level, I think that speculation also symbolizes something about uh, engagement with uncertainty. It represents as a trading practice a certain way of engaging with uncertainty and uh, the unknowability, the indeterminacy of the future in a very daring way, in a very upfront way. And so in that sense, there is another distinction I think that is very important to make when we think about speculation and investment. And that is the distinction of uncertainty between uncertainty and risk. So speculation really runs on uncertainty. It points to a certain way of uh, considering the inherent uncertainty of the future as an asset to be capitalized on, as an asset to uh, which can generate returns. So uh, there is this element of the non-probabilistic engagement with uncertainty specifically, and this is that is expressed through speculation. And that comes with a whole range of today highly technologized financial products through which 
speculation is carried out. I'm referring here to derivatives markets, futures markets, the kind of markets that uh, really what they do is they capitalize and they uh, place wagers on the uh, very uncertainty of the future, on the movement of prices, on the, the ways in which prices are likely to move. But I think, yeah, this is to, to summarize speculation. I see it as a process that encompasses uncertainty in a very distinct way. And also perhaps to add one more final element uh, as an imaginative process for that very reason, because some degree of imagination is required to look at in the eye at the uncertainty of the future. And then final, final note, because it is imaginative, because speculation is quite imaginative, uh, I think it's also by definition relational. In other words, we have to imagine what others in a community of traders, uh, what others think about the future, how others view the future, the likely price movements, likely values, evolution of those values, and uh, position ourselves in relation to, th- to that imagined projection. Uh, so that begins to kind of also, I suppose, uh, point towards why I speak of speculative communities rather than speculation as an individual uh, activity. The way that you kind of characterize it there, I, I found very interesting because as well as being relational, it, all, it really also implies that uncertainty is very political mm-hmm. because you're not just as a speculator predicting the future. If you're a speculator with a, a significant amount of market power, whether that's the power to kind of shape markets through regulation or simply to kind of influence the direction of markets because let's say you you know um, have the capacity to control a significant segment of that market then you're able to shape the future in ways that others aren't so a monopoly for example is going to be able to have a much better view as to the future evolution of prices or we saw for example recently a bunch of central bankers within the fed get um, in hot water over their trading activities when they were in a position to be able to move markets in such a way as to make those bets pay off. So it is also a a political relationship as well as a kind of generally relational one, right? Absolutely, absolutely. That is spot on. Uh, And it's it's this very politics of speculation that makes it fascinating, I think. And also, uh, I think it's important to make another clarification here in that uh, speculation as an activity and as a uh, as a process points to uh, quite profound inequalities in financialized capitalism. So as you said uh, very correctly, different actors in the financialized system have different capacity to speculate, importantly different resources to draw on for those speculations and different access to knowledge about market movements and so on. But there is something quite interesting here that I want to to, um, sort of bring up uh, in this discussion about power uh, and the role of speculation. And that is the fact that speculation has this dual, uh, has two dimensions, consists of, on the one hand, the capacity and the will to engage head-on with the uncertainty of the future in, in capital markets, and to capitalize on that uncertainty. On the other hand, we can also consider speculation as incorporating, as insurance, effectively. So traditionally, the uh, speculators have also been considered as 
insurers in markets. And in that, and I know this is counterintuitive, but that is because they take on unwanted risk and, and they kind of prevent markets from overheating, uh, so to speak. But at its core, speculation, and we can see this with products like uh, the derivative product, for instance, which what is it in its essence is, is a contract which is about an underlying asset, about, and, and it's a contract about the price movement of an underlying asset. And it's in, in a sense, it's a bet, a wager on how that uh, price movement will uh, evolve in the future of that underlying asset. But it's also a bet in that we, a promise has to be broken here. A promise to deliver on a certain price has to be broken for a derivative to yield, to be productive. And there is something here, and this is, there's a political significance in this. I, I think both in, in trying to understand how uh, the powerful have the capacity to gain politically from speculation. So in a sense, speculation and who has access to speculation uh, and what are the available resources to allow for productive and generative speculation is a hugely important question. And then what you were talking about there is the unequal access to those resources. Mm. Uh, and so I think a, a core sort of issue that I'm tackling in the book is how this there are these two aspects of speculation always at play. One is to take on risk, to take on, to tackle uncertainty. And the other is to, to ensure the uh, available insurance, the available security uh, that allows you to take on those risks, right? And so obviously powerful, you know, central banks and, and powerful financial traders, derivatives traders, they all operate from a position of great security and ample access to resources. But I guess my point is that the many, the ordinary people, society at large, is also increasingly asked to speculate. And so we are asked to be speculators uh, in our everyday lives, to, uh, to look at uncertainty in the eye in order to survive. But we, of course, lack the resources to do so. And so uh, part of the argument of the book is that we often then, what we do is we seek uh, symbolic forms of insurance uh, in order to face uncertainty. And what I mean by that is forms of political insurance and reassurance that we uh, find often in ideas like nationalism or in very regressive notions of security and safety, which allows us to deal with uncertainty. But there is a tension here between the imperative to confront uncertainty and uh, our need for security. And there is, an, mm. a, I think, an interplay here that is very interesting. But yes, the, for, for, for sure, there is a great, great discrepancy in the resources, uh, how the resources for speculation are distributed in, in contemporary societies. And that's, that's a crucially important point. Kind of, uh, th these are all really important questions that we're going to come on to as the interview goes on. But let's carry on clarifying some of these terms first, because mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. main actor in your book is this being called Homo speculans as opposed to Homo economicus. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about what that means, how these actors understand themselves in your view and how mm -hmm. they came into being? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this term homo speculans really, uh, which I have to say uh, a friend of mine who's a, a Latin uh, scholar uh, helped me <laughs> with the exact <laughs> phrasing. Um, it kind of came from a... So on the one hand, 
a somewhat of a frustration I had with the dominance of homo economicus as a concept, both within economics itself, obviously, in the way in which the kind of very lopsided view of the contemporary social being as a kind of uh, rationality-driven, efficiency-maximizing economic actor. I thought, I, you know, I, I think there are very well-established critiques of this notion as very problematic because it misses out on the very complex features of human beings and their imagination, to, to say one uh, important thing that is missing. But also, importantly, I was quite unsatisfied with the way in which this homo economicus notion also dominates critics on the left often, and the way in which some of the critics of finance and financialization seem to also subscribe to an assumption that contemporary uh, society consists of highly individualized, fragmented, and also rationality-driven, uh, largely, units. And, 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 and often, you know, that we see finance as a force, um, and of course there is merit in this view, we see finance as a force that dominates and suffocates our political agency. It prevents us from acting in radically political ways. And I think there is a great element of truth in that. However, I still was not happy with considering human beings as through this framing of homo economicus. So that brought me to homo speculans as a kind of alternative way of considering our current position within financialized capitalism, a more dynamic position, I think that is. So no less unequal and uneven, and of course, cornered by the forces of financialized capital, but nonetheless more imaginative, I think, and more relational. Mm. So I would say these are the two elements of homo speculans that are quite important and often neglected, that we as the contemporary financialized subject of contemporary capitalism are imaginative beings, and mm. we also crave connection and community. And that, I think, is an important dimension of, of, of that we exhibit as, as economic subjects. So how has this process of speculation come to form what you call speculative communities? Now, there's a, you know, a critique that we're used to seeing of financialization as creating highly individualized subjects who are kind of competing mm -hmm. with one another in financial markets. But how, in your view, does finance actually connect us to one another? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And very core to the book's argument. So on a first level, I mean, it is a bit counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, why are we really, why speak of a community? What makes this subject I was describing a social subject? And I guess the first thing I want to say is that the book and the argument I'm putting forward is a sociological one. So I am, mm. um, what fascinates me is the way in which uh, finance has impacted on the way people relate to each other in the way in which people imagine themselves as members of society. You know, what does finance do in this kind of imagination? And what does it do in, in our day-to-day -day rituals? The kind of, what we can even call our rites of passage to, to a community. What, what is 
the community. If, if this is a, a community that looks different than before financialization, you know, before finances imperatives were forced on us, how can we trace that community? And my argument is that such a community does exist. It just perhaps looks different to our expectations sometimes. And to just give you some examples of how I understand a speculative community, I think that just as I say, as I said, that homo speculans is a relational and imaginative being, there is an urge, I think, to, to connect that is, is very obvious in our everyday engagements with this very chaotic and uncertain and weird, bizarre world that we inhabit. And so one way to look at this, to look at our day-to-day rituals of, uh, let's say, how we engage with the various apps on our phones, with social media, with Twitter, with Facebook, with Instagram, I'm not suggesting that we're all beautifully connected through these digital uh, platforms in a unproblematic way, but I do nonetheless see in these ritual engagements with those apps, I see a way of dealing with uncertainty in a way that is collective. And this is, and the collective element there is imaginative and uh, it speaks to a key tenet of the book, which is to theorize all this through the lens of the imagination. And my sociological take is one that first and foremost aims to rehabilitate what I call the socially and politically generative force of the human imagination. And I turn to works that don't usually, they're not usually used to, uh, to look at financialized capitalism, such as the work of Benedict Anderson um, and his, his magnum opus, The Imagined Communities, and the work of uh, the philosopher Cornelius Castoriadis. And both those thinkers, what they offer us is a perspective of society as based on our imagination, on our capacity to ritually imagine ourselves as part of a bigger whole, as members of a, of a bigger community. And to go back to this point about our ritual engagement with these bizarre worlds today of digital apps that I mentioned, this is, uh, so Benedict Anderson uh, in his work talks about how nationalism emerges as an imagined community historically. And he talks, Anderson talks about the role of the print press and capitalism as, as uh, advancing the print press and that, which led to accessibility to a common narrative, to a shared narrative for everyday people, be that through the newspaper or through narrative novels. In any case, Anderson points us here to an explanation of the national community through our uh, engagement, our ritual engagement with, uh, with print narratives, with text, with turning the page of the newspaper, Anderson said, and this is how a community is imagined, uh, how one thinks of oneself as a member of a bigger whole. And so there's something about those, the way we, in which we engage with financialized uh, digital technologies that is ritualistic and it is also quite imaginative. So we do, in, the, in what I call in the book, the, the infinite scroll on the infinite swipe, um, you know, these are very um, dark and uh, there's something quite 
gloomy about the image we get there. But I argue that it's not all gloom, that there is something that we do imagine ourselves as part of a bigger whole as we do this constant swipe and scroll. And yes, perhaps we can we can talk a bit more about you know what the what kind of community that is and the, its politics. But yeah, this is broadly how I see speculative mm. communities being formed. I actually want to pick up there on something that you mentioned because I haven't got it written in my questions, but I think it's really important, which is this question of the imagination, because you write about it extensively in your book, and it's not something, as you say, that often comes up in discussions either in you know sociology or certainly not political economy Mm. and uh, you know it strikes me the way that you're talking about it seems very interesting because obviously if the the history of western thought is kind of structured around these dichotomies so reason emotion ancient Mm. modern whatever the way you're talking about imagination which is usually placed in the category of kind of romanticism of feelings of emotion is actually Mm. more about bridging reason and emotion bridging past and future and is therefore a very, a very, as you say, generative force, but also something that can kind of allow us to overcome some of those dichotomies that you see cropping up all the time between, say, you know, reason and emotion, structure and agency that still plague our understanding of, of society and progress and history and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think you put it perfectly there. It's, it's very much what uh, the take of the book is on the imagination and what uh, I'm partly trying to do with sort of rehabilitating this generative, relational, uh, productive role of the imagination. And this is where the, 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 the second thinker that I mentioned, Cornelius Castoriadis, quite a sort of unknown and still neglected in mainstream philosophy thinker, who was also a psychoanalyst, and his great contribution to our understanding of the imagination was precisely what you just mentioned there, the uh, a notion of the imagination as a force that transcends the boundaries of the rational and the irrational, or a thought and action, mm. uh, or material and ideal. In a sense, I, I want to mention just one uh one indicative way in which Castoriadis spoke about the imagination that captures this role is that we, he called us to imagine, to imagine imagination as something that exists before formulating uh, rational or irrational thoughts and before we act. So we can only act rationally or irrationally if we're able to imagine. And so imagination comes first, comes always first. We, and, and so he radically repositioned Castoriadis then imagination from something that, let's say, mirrors reality, reflects reality, or perceives, if you like, reality, the world around us, as something that produces the world around us. So that's very important because it points to the fact that it is also a material force, right? So it's not divorced. It's not a, by being imaginative, we're not being fantasists we're not mm. utopianists we're not uh, operating on a, some realm of uh, idealism and, and this is actually the the marxist element in castoriadis's thought um and and marx himself in fact you know he he he's interested in the imagination and in fact in the book there is a passage from from uh, volume one of capital that i really yeah. like and i focus the architect on... and the being Yes, yes. Which is, of course, also the name of a book written by one of the architects of the Lucas plan. Right, right. Yes, yes, of course. And, and it's, I think it's very 
and quite beautifully captures this amazing force of the imagination to be productive and and but also in a material way right and so mm. I, I think partly then the value of this of this argument and, and it sounds very simple doesn't it i mean that but it's it's still an argument that is not that is often sort of dismissed mm. and, and and i think that in fact it was a good way a good window into looking at the intricacies of finance and the kind of finance as a very dark and often confusing for many world and you know there's something i'm sure you you i know you wanted to ask me about nfts and and kind of crypto markets these kind of you know very odd bizarre worlds and in their essence i mean who understands these worlds and are they how rational or irrational are they I think that the imagination is a better, more sensitive lens through which to look at those worlds and how value is created or, you know, from how ethereal and kind of uh, virtual and removed from reality those worlds are. But also importantly, they're very real because their material impact is huge. They define our future and they define the direction that societies and politics and economies take. So I think the imagination really does speak to this kind of uh, operation of contemporary financial markets, this strange, seemingly removed from reality, yet so real uh, world of finance. I think that brings us really nicely onto my next question, because um, this thing about NFTs, right? There was some research the other day that showed that the market in NFTs is is small and very concentrated. So there's about 32,000 wallets that hold $32 billion in NFTs. Mm-hmm. So that is, you know, a, a small number of people holding quite a lot of wealth there. And it, it, I suppose, raises this question that we hinted to at the start of this conversation, which is this, a question around what are the con- conditions for participation in these mm. communities? Who are the most powerful actors? What are the role of kind of big institutions versus individuals? Are these equal or hierarchical communities? Mm. And you can ask these questions of financial markets in general, but also of those kind of, you know, I don't want to call it call it the dating market, but let's say mm. <laughs> different kinds of communities, like the ones you find around dating apps and the other TikTok and um, mm-hmm. the other digital platforms that you mention in your book. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. The question of power is hugely important here. And when we think about those communities, on one level, if we look at NFTs and or what we can call retail trading and its explosion mm. over the last few years, right? I mean, uh, uh, let's let's take the example that has been so much talked about, uh, the GameStop uh, yeah. debacle and what happened there with, uh, I'm sure your listeners will, will be familiar with this story, with how this group of I don't know if we can call them group of bros or what their social demographics <laughs> was, um, but how essentially folks with not much access to financial resources, but with access to these internet fora and like Reddit and 8chan, 4chan, all this, all this world, um, were able to coordinate and attack short selling this GameStop stock uh, to to take some kind of revenge against the world of powerful financial, legitimate uh, financial traders and derivatives traders who themselves had been uh, betting against that that stock price. I think you wrote as well about this, Grace, didn't you? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) um, 
I what I want to say here, the reason why I bring up this example is not is because this is not the kind of speculative community that I have in mind when I uh, when I, that I had in mind when I wrote the book. And mm-hmm. sure, it is speculative, and there is there is on one level something interesting in that community, something that makes it a community, if you like. That yes, they do. There is an, there is in that there is a craving for connection, and rather than simply for profit, there are some interesting studies that look at how the language used in some of those fora where the information is circulated about how to make the new place, the new wager and, and kind of take revenge for kind of systemic against systemic uh, financialized actors. There is that in itself. There is something, there is a yearning for community, I think, that exists there. But I don't see its politics as the kind of politics that is actually radical or uh, mm. able to move us towards a different kind of, you know, anti-capitalist narrative. And that's because ultimately there is, ultimately there is no challenging of the very logic of finance and no desire to move towards, to, to kind of collectivize to collectivize responsibility, to collectivize risk, and to kind of offer what I was talking about earlier, the kind of collective security and insurance with which we can actually tackle and fight capitalism. And strangely, I actually see that political currency of speculative communities, I see it more in non-financial ways, non-strictly speaking trading ways mm. of, of acting in, con- in the contemporary world. So I see it, for instance, in the book, I talk about counter speculations. And I, my examples there are not GameStop. They are, for example, the kind of ally- political alliances between strangely uh, united actors like BLM, Black Lives Matter protesters with K-popers, the the the, the yeah. folks using you know the fandom communities that are really into K-pop, the, the Korean um, music, band music, and for instance, you know another incident that I bring up in the book is this sabotage of the Trump rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the early days of the presidential campaign, where there was this hashtag, this coordinated sabotage attack uh, by these different constituents through social media and through TikTok, whereby, you know, they bought all these tickets for the rally and then they never showed up. So the rally was, mm. the, the, the stadium was empty. But also they did other things like they hijacked hashtags of uh, extreme right groups uh, to confuse their communication and to prevent them meeting and counter protests. So actions in other worlds, communities, speculative communities that are created through these digital media not with the aim of trading uh, in financial terms, but with the aim of weaponizing a speculative imagination. And what I mean by this is to use uncertainty, to insert themselves in uncertainty and in this confusing landscape of our contemporary politics by way of increasing that uncertainty or, or by way of trying to capitalize on that uncertainty. Yeah, I want to just just kind of, I suppose, ask if I've really kind of correctly understood your argument. Is it that the way that we kind of engage with uncertainty or that speculative communities engage with uncertainty is not just by either going along with it and trying to profit from it, like, for example, mm-hmm. you know, 
the GameStop community or by mm-hmm. reacting against it by demanding a return to kind of order and authority like right-wing mm-hmm. populists. It's actually by constructing communities that can provide a level of mutual collective insurance by promoting mutual care and support, almost like you saw with, say, you know, cooperative movements to provide worker health care before the emergence of the NHS. Definitely, Grace. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is exactly how I see the progressive political and the radical even political potential mm. of speculative communities. And also how I see that logic, this dual aspect, these this two dimensions of speculation playing out possibly in a, in a progressive way. So we have what I think is that we cannot essentially afford to choose uh, between the openness of dealing with uncertainty and the security and stability of taking some insurance yeah. in the face of that uncertainty. I think, you know, both are equally important politically. And I think that there is a lesson perhaps, but there is, like you said, I mean, I think history is full of examples where uh, communities came together to radically re-articulate how they do politics and to experiment, right? To, so we need a degree of experimentation and openness. And that can only happen with providing at the same time the necessary insurance. And like you said, networks that share that collectivize risk, that collectivize responsibility, caring. And in, in a sense, this links, you know, if we look historically at forms of, you know, social democratic f- forms of politics, what they did to a certain degree is, is that collectivization, you know, social security, post-war politics, uh, the NHS, you know, they, they do that work of, that important work of providing insurance but perhaps inevitably they also close down on the side of openness. And I think that is in the current time uh, where we are faced with this radicalization of uncertainty and this very pervasive sense of confusion. And, you know, we can fake news and, and you know, all this, uh, the metaverse and, and, you know, NFTs, and the kind of the political narratives that seem so strange, you know, the worlds of, you know, Johnson and Dominic Cummings and all this kind of very chaotic type of politics. You know, we need precisely now, I think, is a moment where simply emphasizing one of these two poles of speculation is not sufficient. You know, we need the more open-ended narratives but we also need, alongside the fight for more just and mutual responsibility, ways ways of acting and, and organizing. We've talked now a bit about how many of these communities emerged alongside or through new technologies. What's the relationship between technology and speculation in general? Um, because we've often seen historically that speculative bubbles come alongside these big declarations of a technological revolution. And again, because technology seems to be one of those things that really shapes the way that we imagine the future and the technological Mm. change with which we live shapes our predictions of technological change in the future. And that point really made me think about David Graeber's essay on flying cars and the declining rate of profit and how disappointing it's been for many people growing up, uh, believing that by the 2020s we would have flying cars and, you know, laser guns and all these sorts of things from sci-fi. And yet <laughs> that that hasn't happened. 
In terms of finance, if we look at finance and technology, we'll see that what technology has done in the kind of latest form of financialization, the more technologically fueled form of financialization, is it has accelerated, I suppose, but it has also made it even more obscure, even more opaque. And here, so if we just if we just think of the examples of the contemporary derivatives markets or the HFT high frequency trading, you know, the, this is an arena whereby uh, machine learning algorithms and big data science and data behavioral science are deployed to process and to data and to place bets essentially in ways that are very difficult to comprehend and there is actually fascinating research by uh, scholars of the social studies of finance that looks at how even financial even astute financial traders today often find it very hard to comprehend the mechanics that goes into algorithmic trading uh, and algorithmic and the kind of predictions the nanosecond predictions and uh, trade acts that are that take place in the current system so there is there is the phenomenon whereby technology has made financial trading a, an extremely opaque process even for the members of the financial trading community so that is i think a, a very important development in that it sets uh, the financial world even further apart from our comprehensible reality of everyday life and this is, of course, quite dangerous, right? Because, you know, how, for, for one, how do you regulate that? How do you regulate such an opaque w- world? By the way, a world that is becoming even more opaque with um, something like the uh, uh, cryptocurrency trading or NFTs, indeed. So that is one important connection uh, and, uh, between technology and finance that, that I just mentioned. And, and then, of course, we have the, the more indirect impact, if you like, of how technologies, how financialized technologies like social media and various apps have become instruments through which our everyday lives are organized and regulated and experienced. And this kind of takes us back to, to, to the political potential of, of speculative communities, which I think we cannot afford to overlook because ultimately, I suppose it's, it's important to to say my view of where we are at right now in this highly technologized form of financialization is that we cannot, it would be futile to think of resistance to this process from the outside. I think we can only fight fire with fire in a way. We can only articulate our responses in a daring and radical way through, if you like, using some of that speculative imagination of finance against itself so how to do this i mean you know it's a big question but but i think you know it does come back to insurance it does come back to to not uh, turning towards the easy the cheap symbolic insurance of nationalism to do so but rather towards more mutualized uh, and collective forms of of responsibility one place that we do hear about imagination in you know, sociology, political economy, is that famous Jameson quote that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, which Mark Fisher mm-hmm. famously conceptualized as capitalist realism. How do you think 
the speculative imagination, if we're going to use it in the way that you suggested, impacts mm-hmm. our ability to even imagine a world beyond capitalism? Hmm. I think there are openings. I think there are very interesting developments, examples of uh, collective experiences that sort of apply that speculative logic in political ways. Black Lives Matters online uh, hijacks of hashtags and the kind of K-pop fandom community uh, alliance. But there are, I think, there are other ways as well that I uh, that these that speculative communities emerge that are very interesting. For instance, a very different example, which is my experience of the Greek uh, referendum of 2015, when Greek people were asked, I'm sure you remember that very tense time where the time of uh, the debt crisis and when there was this uh, pressure on the Greek, then Greek government, newly elected uh, left government to implement austerity measures or essentially exit the euro. And there was a very, I mean, I, I will never forget that experience of those few weeks being in Greece and experiencing the tension and the great uncertainty and the volatility that was viscerally experienced by people. But it seemed to me that both the way in which Greek people in huge numbers experienced that moment and the way in which they acted, the choice they made, uh, that is the rejection, the, the OHI vote, the no vote uh, to the terms of the European Central Bank and the European Union for more austerity. That OHI, that no, I think is, is a great example of that speculative imagination. And why that is, is because there, there, was, no, there was no alternative program that they selected for. There was no articulation of a kind of pragmatic solution that that vote articulated, that that it expressed. I think it was a kind of endorsement, a creative endorsement of that radical uncertainty with the hope of something better coming out of that uh, situation. And I think, you know, there is something in that embrace of the uncertain that is very hopeful and it can be also liberating for the left, who are often cornered, put, put in a position, I think, of they, they have to articulate a convincing rational alternative program as a blueprint for the future. And to go back to the David Kraper uh, argument, I think that the speculative imagination can be hugely valuable resource for not producing blueprints, but for opening up the spaces for the kind of processes where the collective imagination can be exercised and articulated. And that is an open-ended process and it can take many forms, but I think it's nonetheless a hugely important one and all the, all the more important in the current landscape. So finally, just one last question. How, and we've talked about this a little bit already, but how do you think that the logic of speculation and the emergence of these speculative communities has influenced class struggle specifically and anti-capitalist struggle in general? Because, you know, we often talk, so my piece, for example, on the GameStop saga Hmm. talked a lot about this idea of kind of asset price Keynesianism, the creation of the kind of mini capitalist, small asset owner, which has served to divide the working classes Hmm. and create this relatively small in global terms, but sizable in national terms, class of asset owners who can be relied upon to support the status quo. 
what are the kind of alternative, maybe more hopeful opportunities or avenues for, mm. I suppose, resistance or, mm. yeah, just a resistance that emerge from this, um, yeah. this logical speculation? There is some very uh, exciting thinking around those questions. Like besides the argument I'm trying to make, there is important work that looks at the opportunities for uh, challenging financialized uh, log- the financialized logic of, of contemporary capitalism uh, in radical ways. And perhaps the potential for me, as I understand it, lies with uh, how we position, how we our capacity to position ourselves in the midst of uh, volatility, confusion, and uncertainty. Can we do this in ways that uh, use some of the techniques that are used by, let's say, financialized corporations to undermine them? And uh, there is an example that uh, another thinker who has written about these topics uh, brings up in his book, James Bridal, the, the way in which Uber Eats workers, the, the Uber's food delivery service, how the workers of that company organize their strikes and their uh, strike actions against the organization through using the company's own secret algorithm to place strategic orders through that app and, and that as a way to assemble their co-workers to the picket lines. There are various such examples of uh, workers using the trying to confuse uh, the algorithms of their employer uh, as a way of, of, of action, of organizing against them. Uh, I think there is something really interesting in that logic because this doesn't aim, it's not about, the focus isn't on, art, uh, again, on articulating a clear alternative or coming or fighting from the outside, if you like. But, for, but it, the focus is on weaponizing all available instruments that, that are offered in those uh, technologized spaces of oppression to sustain and to articulate resistance. So I, I think this is, and, and in, in, in my work, I suppose this is what I call, uh, this is what is exp- expressed in the logic of counter speculation in sort of looking for, on the one hand, the uh, appreciable uh, uh, assets and, and projects in, in which to, to speculate, but also in, in looking for those connections and for those spaces, wherever we can find them, which can allow for that speculation to take place. And the final point I want to make is that there is some opportunism that I think, a dose of opportunism that is can be quite useful in, in thinking um, strategically about speculative opportunities politically. Um, and uh, and so this, this is, for example... I think the role of um, uh, left parties can be quite important in this process in affording some of those spaces for, for speculation f- by providing the necessary security. So, you know, I think involvement in grassroots politics and counter-speculative swarm-like politics, like what I've described in, by TikTokers and, and Black Lives Matter, is important, but it, it's not in opposition. It shouldn't necessarily be in opposition to more traditional party politics. Uh, I think the speculative logic perhaps can point to those more open-ended and strategic and unexpected alliances that can be made across different levels of political life in order to find to fight uh, finance uh, on its ground. And yes, I mean, I think you know that can even mean 
employing some sabotage practices within the centrist left parties that we have in our disposal for that aim. Although, again, you know, we, we know some, this is quite a difficult task. We, you know, we know how in UK politics this, this was attempted and not succeeded uh, recently. But I, I hope that makes sense in terms of this openness. Of course, yeah. It doesn't mean we shouldn't still try. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Aris, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. And for those of you who found this discussion interesting, uh, we will be continuing it at the launch of Aris's book, which is I, is it the 13th of January? Uh, the 17th of January. Sorry, the 17th of January. Um, and I will get a link and also a link for where you can pre-order Aris's book. Thanks so much, Grace. Thank you. Thank you so much, Aris, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. And I will speak to you again in a few weeks. <laughs> Thanks so much. Speak to you soon. <laughs>